Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to try to work our way through chapter 9. Off the wall is an indoor soccer complex in Sacramento, California. Off the wall is a company in Austin, Texas that removes graffiti. Off the wall is a weeknight radio show that airs in New York City. Off the wall is an art gallery in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Off the wall is a restaurant on the Caribbean island of St. Croix. And finally, off the wall is the subject of tonight's chapters. For in chapter 7, we find Nehemiah coming down off the wall. And we discover what he does next. It took Nehemiah and the builders 52 days to construct the walls of Jerusalem. It was an amazing accomplishment in such a short period of time. Up until now, Nehemiah has been focused on the bricks. But during the construction, he realizes how the believers themselves need to be rebuilt. Once he comes down off the wall, he turns his attention to another renovation project. It took less than two months for Nehemiah to rebuild the walls, but it will take this man the rest of his life to rebuild the people who will live and worship within those walls. Once a young soldier was recommended to Napoleon Bonaparte for advancement in rank. His commander told Napoleon that this young private had played an instrumental role in winning a great victory. Napoleon had one question. He said, what did he do the day after? You see, the answer to that question is the mark of true greatness. A truly great person not only rises to the occasion to win a victory, but he steps up the day after and the next day, and the next, to see to it that the victory won is built upon. Well, tonight's chapters tell us what Nehemiah did on the 53rd day, and the 54th day, and the 55th day, and all the days following the completion of the walls. Verse 1 says, Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Notice Nehemiah appoints two assistants to manage Jerusalem, Hanani and Hananiah. And what he says about these two men illustrate three characteristics of a good leader. First, he shows grace. Second, he fears God. And third, he is above all faithful. Both these names, Hananan and Hananiah, come from the same root word. It means grace. Hananiah means graciousness, where Hananiah means grace of God. These were the grace brothers. And you know, when you truly taste of God's grace, you become a gracious person. There's a baseball card. It's worth more than $100. It's entitled Future Stars. Three players are on the face of this card. The first two are Jeff Snyder and Bobby Bonner. Both had very forgettable careers. The third man on that baseball card, though, played 21 years for the Baltimore Orioles, appeared in 3,001 games, 2,131 in a row, which is a record, he collected 3,184 hits, 
431 home runs and 1,695 RBIs. And this past summer, this third player was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. His name is Cal Ripken. Now, if you talk to Jeff Snyder or to Bobby Bonner, they would say that their baseball card was worth 100 bucks. And it is. But not because of their efforts or their accomplishments. It's because they share a relationship with Cal Ripken. And this is how grace works. When you embrace Jesus, God puts you on the same baseball card with his son. You share in all that Jesus has accomplished. His stats get added to your worth. You become valued because of your relationship with our Lord Jesus. And you see, a gracious person is willing to extend to others the grace that they have received. A gracious person will pick people up and share God's blessings with them. Well, Nehemiah showed great wisdom in placing the Grace Brothers in charge of Jerusalem. But they were also known as faithful men and men who feared God. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. There Paul tells us, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And guys, we are all stewards. We are caretakers of God-given time and treasures and talents. And it is up to us to be faithful to use them in ways that will bring God glory and be good to men. And to be faithful, I have found you have to fear God. To reverence the Lord is to see Him as He truly is with no limitations on His holiness, with no assumptions about His love. You see, grace puts me on the same baseball card with Jesus, but the fear of God causes me not to take His grace for granted and causes me to be faithful to my callings. Well, Nehemiah continues here in verse 3. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one in his watch station and another in front of his house. Nehemiah wanted the gates closed before daybreak and then shut after dark. A saboteur could slip in under the cover of darkness. A raiders might launch a pre-dawn attack. He also established watchtowers and he posted guards. He wanted to protect what God had enabled them to build. Verse 4, now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. Jerusalem now had strong walls, but there were no inhabitants to enjoy those walls or to prosper within their protection. Because of the lack of walls, people had moved to the burbs. And this is a challenge that city planners face today. How do you get suburbanites to leave behind the convenience and comforts of the suburbs and return to the inner city? Perhaps you've seen this list. You are so suburban if. Your lawnmower is more powerful than your first car. Your kids have never crossed the street at a stoplight. You drive your van a block to get milk. You have no idea if your town has a public bus service. Your most recent night out was a parent-teacher conference. You sometimes refer to summer as garage sale season. 
And then last, you jog five miles a day, but spend 30 minutes waiting for a closer parking space. Hey, because Jerusalem was lacking walls of protection, the Jews had settled in the surrounding cities. They had migrated to the burbs where life was easier and safer. Now Nehemiah has to convince these wall workers to become city dwellers. And I think this is the challenge today for pastors and church leaders. For in many ways, church life is like city life. It's congested and it's busy. In church, you rub shoulders with diverse people. You get mad at folks sometimes. and You make folks mad at you. In the church, you're exposed to verbal graffiti. Sometimes some gossip you hear, some negativity. You drive by areas of the church that are run down and need renewal. We learn that the church is not all it should be once we move back to the city. And some Christians retreat. They want to retreat to the isolation of the burbs. In essence, some Christians are spiritual suburbanites. David Getz has a book he calls Suburban Christianity, and in it he writes, the pokey little local church is still the most fertile environment for spiritual development. Disillusionment with one's church is not a reason to leave, but a reason to stay and see what God will create in one's life and in that pokey local church. What I perceive to be my needs may not correspond to my true spiritual needs. Thinking that I know my true need is arrogant and narcissistic. Staying put as a life practice allows God's grace to work on the unsanded surfaces of my life. Staying put as a life practice. Think about that. Well, as with Nehemiah, it's the job of church leaders to build strong, walls in the church, and then convince fellow believers to move back into town. Verse 5, then my God put it in my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Nehemiah went back and he raided the Jewish archives. And there he found a 90-year-old passenger list, a manifest. We call it Ezra chapter 2. It contained the names of the wave of Jews who came with Zerubbabel, from Babylon, the first wave of Jews, who came to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. These were the grandparents of the Jews who were living with Nehemiah at the time. And the names in this list conjured up memories of faith. I mean, these were the people who had uprooted their families to follow in the footsteps of their ancestor Abraham. They had left jobs and friends and familiarity and they had moved from Persia across the Fertile Crescent to the ravaged land of Judah and the ruins of Jerusalem. These were the people willing to lay it all on the line to partner with God in a new work. Here's what Nehemiah was thinking. If these folks could move 1,000 miles from Babylon back to Jerusalem, can't the current Jews move from the burbs back into town? It was good reasoning. 
Now let me summarize this list because it's interesting how Nehemiah uses these names to give the Jews a reason to move back into the heart of Jerusalem. Verses 8 through 38 talk about family groups. Notice you see the expression, the sons of. In other words, he appealed to a relational connection. Verses 39 through 60 mentions positions of service or a vocational connection. Verses 61 through 65 deal with the priests who couldn't prove their pedigree, and God is called in to provide some supernatural confirmation of their priesthood. In other words, a spiritual connection forms. Verses 66 to 72 lists folks who gave financially to the work, forming a sacrificial connection. Now, this is how you get people connected to a church. This is how we'll get people connected here to Calvary Chapel. There are four ways. If you sense you belong, if you have friends, if you have relationships within the church that are meaningful to you, you'll want to connect. Or if you see where you can serve. If you find a post, someplace that you can get planted and you can serve God in a meaningful way. Or third, if you know that you're called, that you have heard from God, that God has spoken to your heart, that you need to be with these people at this time. If you have a calling to a particular church, you'll want to stay and you'll want to get connected. Or if you invest financially. If you give of your tithes and offerings to a church and invest something of yourself in that church, you'll want to be a part of it. You'll want to help it succeed. You'll feel a connection, a relational connection, a vocational connection, a spiritual connection, and a sacrificial connection. We all make these different connections at different times to the church. That's why we want to be plugged in. We want to be involved. We want to help the church succeed. Chapter 8 tells us, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. Now let's go back and review a little bit. Three waves of Jews came back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Three waves. First wave was under a man named Zerubbabel, and he rebuilt the temple, right? Second wave of Jews came back with Ezra, and they rebuilt the people. Third wave came back with Nehemiah. They rebuilt the walls. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. Ezra rebuilt the people. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. Now, Ezra was a priest and a scribe, and he returned to Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah had in 458 B.C., And now these two men team up to build up the people of Jerusalem. It's now a walled city, so public gatherings have become possible. And Ezra's asked to bring out the law of God and deliver a public reading. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And notice Ezra read the word to who? 
to those who could understand. You see, those too young to grasp the message had already been dismissed to children's ministry. Now here is a biblical basis for children's ministry in the church. People are all the time saying, well, I want to bring my kids into the sanctuary and into the adult service. Why? Don't tell me you want to do it for the kids. Because they're not going to get anything out of it. Maybe you want to do it for yourself. Maybe you get some kind of nostalgic feeling from it. But you're not doing it for the kids' sake. They would be better ministered to on their own level in a way that they can understand. It does no one any good to hear what they don't understand. Then they just turn off to it. It is a sin to bore kids with the Bible. And that's what you do if you present it in a way that they can't understand. The Scripture needs to be presented on a level and in a way that everyone listening can understand. He says, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This all reminds me of the great African leader, Menelik II. He's the founder of modern Ethiopia. King Menelik had a little-known habit. When he got sick, he would eat a few pages of the Bible. He believed that the paper... It actually had the power to restore his health. And so whenever he got sick, he'd just tear a few pages out and he'd eat them. In 1913, Menelik had a stroke. And he became extremely ill. This time, King Menelik tore out the whole book of Kings and ate every page. And you know what happened to him? He died. Proving it's not the pages themselves that bring the healing. It's got to be understood and applied. If we really want to read, if what we read is really going to produce spiritual health, we've got to understand it and we've got to obey it. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for this purpose. And beside him, and he lifts the men at his right side and on his left, then verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, 13 priests. I counted them, but I'm not going to name them. I'm going to let you stab at that. And the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Notice this. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And I love this format. This is what we follow here at Calvary Chapel. First, we read the book distinctly. In other words, we pay attention to each word in its context. Then we give the sense. In other words, what the author meant and what the people who read it understood, we give the sense. And then finally, we illustrate and we motivate and we apply what we've read to everyday life. We understand it. This approach is called expository teaching. You know, topical Bible studies start with a premise which by the way, may or may not be biblical, but they start with a premise and then they use the Bible to prove that premise. Whereas expository teaching 
starts with a passage of Scripture and then seeks to uncover the meaning of that Scripture in its context. It lets the Bible speak for itself. I prefer expository teaching. The Hebrews returned from Babylon speaking the Aramaic language. The Scriptures, though, have been written in Hebrew. Thus, the priests had much to explain. And it's interesting today, 2,500 years later, a Bible teacher still has much to explain. You know, the Bible is amazingly simple to grasp, and yet it's still a book that was written a long time ago in a faraway place by different people in different cultures, and therefore Bible teachers are important. Dr. Donald Campbell once wrote, Ezra and his helpers were the first in a long line of expository preachers who explained the Bible. This method of preaching has been blessed by God down through the centuries and continues to be an effective instrument for bringing Christians to spiritual maturity. Topical and textual preaching may often be inspiring and helpful, but the spiritual benefits do not compare with those resulting from a preaching ministry like Ezra's. Blessed indeed are the believers who are privileged to sit under expository preaching of the Scriptures. You and I are certainly among the blessed. Verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. See, the word of God created a genuine sorrow and a repentance in their hearts. They all started to weep. You know, sometimes we do need to weep. But at other times, tears can drown out our faith. Rather than mourn over our sin, Nehemiah knew that the people needed to focus on God's forgiveness. God had given them a new beginning. You know, at times, we need to recall how far we have fallen. But at other times, we need to recall how far we've come. You know, if I look at where I need to be, I can get pretty depressed. I'll cry too. But though I'm not where I need to be or want to be, I'm certainly not where I used to be. And for that, I am thankful and I can get very excited. Nehemiah and Ezra sensed that this was a time to rejoice, not regret. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I love that statement. The joy of the Lord gives us wings to rise above circumstance. It fortifies us in times of trial and persecution, Joy is the secret up the Christian's sleeve. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. Joy was his strength. It kept Jesus going. And the promise of joy will deliver you from many a trial and hardship. When you have a cross to bear, for Jesus' sake, his joy will deliver you. The shortest verse in the Bible in the English Bible, that is, is John 10, verse 35. You know what it is. Jesus wept. But the shortest verse in the Greek Bible 
is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice evermore. Jesus experienced sorrow for a season so that you and I could rejoice forever. But there's more to this verse. The joy of the Lord is your strength. There is a joy under the Lord. This is just the joy of being alive. Breathing fresh air, enjoying the flowers and the pretty weather, the natural pleasures of life. This is the joy under the Lord. There is a joy in the Lord. This is the joy that we derive from our position in Christ, the blessings and privileges that He's given us as His children. There is a joy from the Lord. This is that supernatural joy that sort of flows directly from the throne of God. When we need it most, He fills us with this joy. But Nehemiah is not talking about joy under the Lord or joy in the Lord or joy from the Lord. Notice he says it is the joy of the Lord that's your strength. And what is it that the Lord Himself rejoices over? God takes joy in His people. He loves you. He thinks fondly of you. It's knowing that God doesn't regret saving me. Nor does He grow weary of me. Nor does He view me as excess baggage. That He really likes me. And that He loves me to boot. This is what gives me strength. It's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. Once there was a severe thunderstorm The sky was filled with flashes of lightning. When the little girl, she just stood up right there in the big picture window in her living room and she sort of spread out like this and she said to her mom, she says, you know, I think God is trying to take my picture. Just maybe he is. If God has a refrigerator, your picture hangs from one of those magnets right on the door. Your picture. If God has a wallet, your photo is in the little plastic window. If God collects trading cards, it's not of baseball players. He has a card for each of His children. God loves you. Zephaniah tells us that God rejoices over us with gladness. When we realize, what is the joy of the Lord? It's us. It's it's how much He loves you. It's how much He loves me. When I realize how much God loves me, this becomes my strength. Verse 12. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, Be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Understanding of God's word brought joy. Now on the second day, this was the day after the initial reading by Ezra, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law the exact location, Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 44, which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain, and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. As Ezra read the law, it dawned on him and the Jews 
that the Feast of Tabernacles was upon them. And so they went and they built these outdoor booths or these huts. These were reminders of their journey through the wilderness, how that they lived outside for 40 years, and how during that time, God made provision for them. He clothed them. He fed them with the manna, all the different provisions that God provided for them. And so once a year, for that week, they would go outside. Did you know that today, Jews still commemorate the Feast of Tabernacles? And many do it the very same way, by building booths outside and by going out and and living out under the stars for one week out of the year. Feast of Tabernacles. It's a wonderful celebration. And so the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. It was like a big family camping trip, you know. Let's all just kind of go and camp out, except they could do it in their own backyard. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Notice the feast lasted eight days. And each day, Ezra read the Word of God. Notice this, reading the Bible became a daily habit. And I ask you, is it your habit? John Bunyan once said of his life, I was never out of my Bible. It's tragic, but a Barna survey recently showed that half of all Americans never read the Bible at all. The majority of born-again Christians read it only once or twice a week. Here's the breakdown. 18% read the Bible between three and six days a week. Just 18%. 37% read it just once or twice a week, and 23%, this is a born-again Christians, never read the Bible at all. No wonder we are so weak and so anemic spiritually. I love what one author wrote. Read the Bible and read it again, and do not despair. Don't think that the will and mind of God are locked up from you. Even if you lack commentaries and expositions, pray and read, read and pray, for a little from God is better than a great deal from man. Don't you like that? In other words, read the Bible. Just read a little a day, for that little will begin to pile up and become a great blessing in your life. After the F-16 jet fighter was manufactured, manufactured by American engineers, a flaw was discovered in the design. There was a blind spot in the pilot's range of visibility. In other words, he couldn't see directly behind him. American engineers spent millions of dollars trying to adjust their radar sensors to correct the problem. All their engineering efforts failed. But the Israelis bought a bunch of these F-16s that they used in their air campaign in the early 80s over southern Lebanon. And the Israelis developed a very quick and a very effective fix for the F-16, for this blind spot. They mounted rear view mirrors in the cockpit. Just stuck them on the dashboard. 
It was a $36 mirror, but it solved the problem. And here is the moral of the story. Often the key to future success is the ability to look behind you. We all need a spiritual rearview mirror. We need to recall what's gone on behind us. The victories won, the defeat suffered, the lessons learned. Chapter 9 could be called Israel's rearview mirror. For in Nehemiah chapter 9, the Jewish leaders stand on the stairs of the temple and the Levites recount God's faithfulness to Israel throughout the nation's history. Verse 1 begins. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Now I told you there was a time for rejoicing, but there's also a time for mourning. And this was that time. And so they come with these displays of sorrow and repentance. Sackcloth, as we talked about this morning, was this coarse fiber, very stiff burlap. It was intentionally designed to irritate your skin. Israel's rearview mirror had caught a glimpse of their forefathers' mistakes. And they realized that they were inclined to repeat those mistakes unless they were careful. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Notice this. They not only confessed their own sins, but they confessed the iniquities of their fathers. The people realized that the state of the Jews in Nehemiah's day was the cumulative effect of generations of disobedience. In other words, sin had been passed down. You know, a couple of years ago, the faculty senate of the University of Alabama issued an apology for the university's role in slavery prior to the Civil War. A professor for the University of Alabama stated that their intent was not to stir up 100-year-old hurts, but it was to correct an error. You know, sometimes a right attitude today requires admitting the sins of yesterday. If we don't want to repeat the sinful actions of our forefathers, the first step is to agree that their actions were sinful. And this is what the Jews here do as Nehemiah, as he instructs the Levites to read to them and recount the history of Israel. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. The time period called the day, no doubt referred to the waking day or 12 hours. This meant that they read the Bible for three hours, and then they spent another three hours confessing their sins and worshipping God. Now, I'm proud of our congregation. You guys let me teach for almost an hour here on Sunday nights. But oh boy, I start tipping 8 o'clock and people start looking at their watches. The crowd gets restless. There's a rumble in the sanctuary. Imagine this. They sat for three hours to hear God's Word read to them. And then they spent another three hours worshiping and praising God together. Notice the Jews spent as long assimilating what they had read as they had spent reading it. 
Now, this is what you've got to understand about reading the Bible. Reading the Bible is not like reading a novel. Every night, my wife goes to sleep by reading a novel. She, she grabs it. I know when she, she goes to bed, she's laying there. She's got a little novel out. She's reading. She reads herself to sleep every night. You know, you can do that with a novel, but you don't do that with the Bible. You don't want to just read yourself to sleep. You want to read it, and then you want to spend as much time trying to digest it and understand it as you've spent reading it. In other words, you don't just go through the Word, but then you let the Word go through you. That's how you get the most out of Bible study. Well, verse 4 tells us, Then Joshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, and Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenanai. These mothers ought to be shot for naming these kids like this. Where's Bill and George and Tim and Tom? Anyway, they stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, there were eight of them, they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host. Did you know that God made heaven in layers? He talks about the heaven of heavens. The earth's atmosphere in the Bible is referred to as the first heaven. What we call outer space is the second heaven. But the spiritual dimension where God's throne dwells, where angels reside, is what the Apostle Paul referred to as the third heaven. We're told that God made the heaven of heavens and the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. All creation worships the Lord. Verse 7 begins Israel's history. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Abram meant father, but Abraham meant father of many nations. The name change from Abram to Abraham reflected the blessing that God had bestowed upon him and his descendants. He says of Abraham, You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. And notice what the Levites say about God's promise of the land of Israel. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. Notice this. God ties his righteousness, his own very character and reputation to his promise to give the land to Abraham and to his descendants. Now this is why the Palestinians today are fighting a losing battle. For before the land belonged to the Arabs, even before the land belonged to the Hebrews, even before the land belonged to the Canaanites, the land belonged to God. And God chose to give it, not just to Abraham, but notice our text, but also to his descendants. Verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, 
against all his servants and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. James 4 verse 6 tells us God resists the proud. And the classic example was the haughty Pharaoh. If you don't believe God can take down a proud person a notch or two, just ask Yule Brenner. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Just ask the Pharaoh. Notice 2 verse 10 says that at the Exodus, God made a name for Himself. His humbling of Egypt put the world on notice that the one true God dwelt in Israel. It was a monumental action. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. The Egyptians sunk like a large rock. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. God gave them manna. Manna was the original wonder bread. Did you know the psalmist referred to the manna as angel's food? Manna was Israel's supernatural substance for two million people, six days a week for 40 years. Wow. God also told Moses to strike a rock. And when he did, water gushed out to quench the thirst of the people. We're told that that rock traveled with Israel through the wilderness. God gave the Hebrews food. He gave them water. In fact, 16 times in this prayer, we're told that God gave to his people. Let it be known, our God is a giving God. Verse 16 breaks the flow, sadly. But, despite all that God had given to them, we're told, they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. You remember their leader? That little twerp, Edward G. Robinson. You remember that guy? Every time I watch the Ten Commandments, I want to slap that guy right across the snout. Moses, Moses. Gosh, what a twerp. Despite all that God had done at the border of the promised land, the Hebrews succumbed to their fears. They stumbled in unbelief. And if you didn't know God, you might expect Him to abandon them. Yet the next verse tells us, But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. 
Oh my. If you're struggling tonight, would you go home and read that verse ten times? If you're a Jonah and you've repented, but oh my, you're not sure if God can give you a second chance. Remember the Hebrews. Read that verse ten times. Our God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. He won't forsake you. And more of his mercy is on display here in verse 18. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The word translated provocations in verse 18 means to scorn or to belittle. God continually did these awesome deeds for his people, but they responded by degrading and by belittling the works of God. In other words, they failed to appreciate what God was doing for them. Don't you fall into that same trap. Verse 19, the pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. Despite the people's failures, God remained faithful to the Hebrews. He says, you also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Now, I don't want you to miss a vital point here for verse 20. Notice, the Holy Spirit is referred to as God's good spirit. There are a lot of Christians, there are a lot of us, in fact, who come out of non-charismatic churches that basically are afraid of the Holy Spirit. They're afraid of those supernatural gifts, speaking in tongues, gifts of healing, gifts of miracles, things like that. They run for cover at the first hint of speaking in tongues or a prophetic utterance. If you come from that background, I want you to remember that the Holy Spirit is a good spirit. Remember that. His ways are not to be scorned or belittled. They're to be enjoyed and appreciated. Verse 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Notice this, their clothes did not wear out. Now I know some of you ladies might be disappointed by that. Because that means you'd have no excuse to go back down to Kohl's or Goodies or wherever it is and, and buy new ones. But their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Imagine that. I mean, they're walking through the wilderness, the hot desert sand, and yet their feet did not swell. Evidently, the great physician is even better than Dr. Scholl's. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Zion, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. These were the nations the Hebrews conquered east of the Jordan before they crossed the river. Verse 23, You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of goods, Cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. 
So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And you would think such blessing would produce a thankful people. Here we are at Thanksgiving. You expect such grateful, such wonderful works would produce grateful people. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself and they worked great provocations. Novelist John Steinbeck once said, if you want to destroy a nation, give it too much. Make it greedy, miserable, and sick. It's been said for every 100 men who can withstand adversity, there is only one who can withstand prosperity. It's true. Prosperity can ruin not just a nation, but a church and even an individual. A person can become so attached to the blessings that they forget the blesser. We can get so into the gifts God gives us that we make them idols, that we worship the gifts instead of the giver. Verse 27, Therefore you deliver them into the hand of their enemies who oppress them. And in the time of their trouble when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Men like Gideon and Samson and Samuel and David and Elijah and Hezekiah, they all fought battles to liberate the Jews. Verse 28. But after they had rest, they again did be evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years, 850 years to be exact, the people would sin and they would turn from God. And then to get their attention, God would raise up an enemy to oppress them. Of course, they would cry out for mercy. And then God would respond with deliverance. And over and over this cycle continued. For eight and a half long centuries, almost a millennium, this cycle of sin, bondage, deliverance, sin, bondage, deliverance repeated itself. Finally, God threw the knockout punch. Verse 30. You had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Since they worshipped idols, God sent them to live in the land of the idolaters. The Assyrians swept into Israel, the northern kingdom, and scattered God's people to the ends of the earth. Then the Babylonians came, and they sacked Jerusalem and took the Jews captive. Verse 31 breathes hope. Nevertheless, in your great mercy... You did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant in mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us 
And here's their history in a nutshell. Verse 33. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. There it is. The leaders of the Jews accept the consequences of their actions. They're no longer formulating excuses or dodging blame or sidestepping responsibility. They admit the truth. They say to God, you are just in all that has befallen us. They repent. Once the Prussian king, Frederick the Great, was touring a Berlin prison, all the prisoners that he spoke to that day claimed to be innocent. They all begged for his pardon except one inmate. Frederick called the man over and asked him if he was guilty. He replied, yes, yes, I'm guilty. And I deserve my punishment. Frederick immediately turned to the jailer and he ordered, release this guilty wretch at once. I won't have kept him in prison where he can corrupt all these fine innocent people around him. In other words... An honest admission gained the man a pardon. And you know what? This is what God promises us. An honest admission. Just come clean, man. Just stop hiding it. Stop pushing it under the rug. Stop excusing it or pretending it's not there. Just an honest admission will gain for you a pardon from God. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, the only sin God won't forgive is an unconfessed sin. Verse 34, Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them. Nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today. And the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. We're going to learn in chapter 10 that the Jews take an oath to walk in God's ways, and the leaders seal it with their signatures. In other words, they put their names on the dotted line. Which leads us to our question tonight. Are you willing to put your name on the dotted line? Are you willing to confess your sin? To repent of your sin? Are you willing tonight to follow God and let Him work the changes in your life that He desires? Will you sign your name on the dotted line?